Throughout this podcast, we will be discussing and sharing unfiltered and sensitive stories about deportation, family separation, racism, and trauma. It's Please take care of yourself. It's the Mexican day. They come, INS comes, takes all these hardworking people. They have the right to be here. They're only here to work. In the culmination of a 10-month federal investigation on December 12, 2006, while many Catholics were preparing to celebrate El Día de Guadalupe, immigration and customs agents conducted a simultaneous raid of six Swift & Company meat packaging facilities across the United States. The raid, later named Operation Wagon Train, was the largest immigration enforcement action in U.S. history. Approximately 1,300 people were arrested, and many of them deported. Arrest and forcible removal from a country can cause incredible pain and trauma for an individual being deported. But what about the people and the community that are left behind? This is their story. Welcome to Solo Eramos Niños. Over these next five episodes, we will talk about immigration, first generations, the aftermath of deportation, and the people in the middle of it all. I'm Shelby Lopez. And I'm Angel Lopez. Empecemos. Why did you want to tell this story? Thanks for asking, my love. So giving a voice to my community, uh, specifically the Latine and immigrant community, is something that I've always had a strong desire for. But being a child of immigrants, it is a community that is often silenced by a lot of fear. So that's similarly what happened with this Swift raid story. The idea of telling the story really just came from a conversation with John Mejia, mm -hmm. where he and I were reminiscing about our time growing up in Logan and then the raids came up and we talked about how it impacted us. We talked about how it impacted our friends and our communities and all the changes that we really saw. And I just started feeling such a knot in my stomach because I was honestly forced to face something that I never fully processed myself. Mm -hmm. Um, so to give the listeners a little backstory, the Swift raids personally impacted me during my formative years. One of the first things I remember of that day was my elementary school teacher pulling all of the Latine students to the side at the end of the school day and saying something along the lines of, hey, um, if you get home and your parents aren't there when they're supposed to be, um, come back to the school. And I thought that was a little bit weird as a kid. So as me and my younger sister were walking home um, and we walked through the door of our house, uh, the phone was ringing nonstop and I knew that something was wrong. Um, on the other end of the phone was my mom. I vaguely remember her being a little frantic as she told me and my sister to grab clothing and put it into our backpacks because we were going to go to my aunt's house. Um, to spare all the intricate details, uh, my father was ultimately deported as a result of the raids. It was something that was so incredibly painful to this day and something that my entire family experienced, but we never really discussed. Um, there was just too much hurt there. Our family was torn apart. My mother had to pick up additional jobs just to put food on the table and pay the mortgage. Um, she worked so hard to make ends meet and all of the children just did our part to carry on and ignore the hurt. The community as a whole was affected. There was a lot of fear at schools and at church. We were unsure if there would be another raid at any moment and if the neighbors or the police were just out to get us. 
the fear silenced us. And now 16 years later, I think it's important to share how this event impacted my community and the children who, like me, are now adults just trying to process a lot of the trauma from these raids. So that's why I want to tell this story. I think that's all so important. And I really believe that this story deserves to be told. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Absolutely. I'll give the quick Spark Notes version of myself here. I am Angel Lopez, or you can also call me Angel Lopez. I am a Chicano man who currently resides in Georgia with my wonderful wife and co-host um, and our dog Porkchop. I have three incredible siblings and two very hardworking parents. Uh, I was born in California after my parents immigrated from Mexico. And while I was born in California, I spent the first bit of my childhood in Idaho after my parents moved over there uh, to do the typical immigrant work, whether it was working at the dairy farm or moving irrigation pipeline. Uh, my parents worked a lot and my siblings were so tight-knit because of it it was awesome my siblings were my best friends all growing up and after a, that short stint in idaho my parents actually decided to move up to cache valley in specifically logan utah the move was a bit of whiplash from moving from idaho to cache valley because it was like moving into a really big town or so we thought and it was really exciting it was uh lots of opportunity and Logan is ultimately where I made my home. I graduated from Utah State University with my bachelor's degree in marketing and now in my professional life I work in sales development at a tech company um, and which is the original reason we moved out here to Georgia. At this company I've been able to be part of some great Latina employee councils and other diversity and inclusion initiatives which has only fueled my passion for serving my people. So looking forward, the dream is to continue to amplify the voice of my Latino community in whatever avenue I can. And I just hope this podcast reaches the people who need to hear it. Why, of all places, did your family choose to move to Logan? I believe it was mainly due to my aunt living out in Hiram, Utah. We would be visiting Utah regularly to go see my aunt and my cousins. And my parents just felt like there was more opportunity out here Um Funny enough, my aunt actually had a very long career at Swift & Co. and was one of the connections that my family had to that company before we even moved out to Utah. Thank you, honey. I really appreciate your willingness to tell your story. I feel like your story can resonate with a lot of other first-generation folks as well. I know, like you said, there can be a lot of fear around talking about these experiences in families with undocumented people, so I really appreciate it. Absolutely, and... One thing I do want to recognize is that my story is and isn't unique in a lot of ways. A lot of people have experienced similar traumas and similar pain having their families separated. And one of the main reasons it's important to elevate this story and others like it is so we're not passing this trauma and hurt onto future generations. It's important that we heal ourselves first. We share these stories and then we find ways to make it better as we move forward. So enough about me. Now that I've introduced myself, Shelby, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're helping tell this story with me? Sure thing. My name is Shelby Lopez. I am your very lucky wife. I was born and raised in Bountiful, Utah, which is much closer to Salt Lake than it is to Cache Valley. However, both of my parents grew up in Cache Valley. That's where they met. That's where they got married. So when I was growing up, we were always driving to Grandma and Grandpa Taylor's in Hiram. 
and then 15 minutes up the road to Grandma and Grandpa Kingsford's in Logan. I am white, and my whole family comes from an LDS background, so the way that I experienced Cache Valley was very much the white side of Cache Valley. It's interesting now to think back that as a child, the most exposure I had to the Latino community was in my grandpa's trailer park in Hiram. Though I want to note that through my education and my career, I've worked really hard to develop a practice and a perspective of anti-racism and cultural humility. I am a social worker. I have worked in the field of social work for a couple of years now. In this field, I've had the opportunity to work with the child welfare system or the foster care system. I've worked with under-resourced youth. I've worked with people experiencing houselessness and with refugee and immigrant populations. I'm currently and have done a lot of work around sexual violence and survivorship. And I'm currently a master's of social work student at the University of Georgia in my second year. So when you and John were having that conversation you had mentioned, I was processing it all through a social work lens. I was focused on the trauma that the raid had caused you personally and so many other people in your community. Not to mention there were all these light bulbs that were going off when you and he were talking about the fighting and the lashing out and the overlap of hypervigilance and fear. These kind of behaviors can often be indicative of trauma, which we'll discuss more in later episodes. The conversation about the raids reminded me about a documentary we had recently watched in my trauma assessment class called Katrina Babies. The documentary was written and directed by Edward Buckles, who's a native to New Orleans, and he was a child during Hurricane Katrina in 2005. He wanted to do this documentary to allow other people who were kids during Katrina to be able to tell their own narratives. It was really harrowing to think about that this huge, unprecedented natural disaster happened, and then no one ever really asked these kids how they were doing. No one ever really followed up with them. So it was impossible not to draw the parallels between that documentary and your experiences around the raids. So that's why I'm here, to bring into this conversation a perspective regarding resources, trauma, mental health, and providing support wherever and however I can. Thank you so much for sharing more about your background and expertise. I am so excited to get to work with you. I could not ask for a better partner to help unpack and process through the many stories that we will hear. So now that we've introduced ourselves, let's take a deeper look into Operation Wagon Train and the events that unfolded on December 12th, 2006. Why all of a sudden do they have to take him? He has a three-month-old What am I supposed to do? I'm not going to live off welfare. So here we are. These raids happened. Communities were torn apart. Families separated. What was the reason for it all? Why was ICE investigating? The whole process of the raids was instigated because of concerns regarding identity theft that started this 10-month federal investigation. Specifically, undocumented workers were using social security numbers of U.S. citizens in order to work at the plants. ICE agents contacted SWIFT prior to the raids, notifying them of their concerns. As a result, Swift and Company implemented a more rigorous approach to their review of workers' documents. These procedures resulted in the firing of about 400 undocumented workers across the company months before the raid was executed. 
When notified of the investigation, a representative of SWIFT stated that the company offered to cooperate with the federal agency, but were rebuffed. So with the focus of the raid surrounding identity theft, let's talk numbers. Across the six plants that were raided, how many were arrested, how many deported, and how many were actually charged with identity theft? In total, 1,282 people were arrested the day of the raids. Of the 1,282, only 274 people were charged with crimes. And more specifically, approximately 65 of the 274 were charged with identity theft. To be clear, that means only 5% of those arrested were charged with a crime that federal authorities claim was the purpose of the investigation. Of the 1,282 arrests, we were unable to find the exact number of how many people were deported. Most of the resources we have access to simply put that most were deported. So it's fascinating that only 5% of those arrested were due to the reason that they were originally investigating. Um, So just drilling further, here is a breakdown of each of the locations and the number of arrests that took place the morning of December 12th, 2006. Greeley, Colorado saw 261 arrests. Worthington, Minnesota saw 230. Marshallton, Iowa saw 90. Grand Island, Nebraska saw 261. Cactus, Texas saw 295 arrests. And Hiram, Utah saw 145 arrests. The raids also brought further scrutiny into these communities and many were arrested and deported in the days and months after the raids. So let's talk about what the raids looked like. Can you tell us how it happened? Most of the information we have on how the raids happened come from public records. So what we understand is at 6 a.m., more than 1,000 armed ICE agents were poised and ready to carry out the raids. Federal agents surrounded each of the plants after the morning shift had already started. Once the agents entered the building and the raid began... Some of the frightened workers jumped into cattle pens, some hid behind machinery or in closets. Some who tried to run were wrestled to the ground. Sworn statements by workers at Greeley, Colorado, alleged that ICE agents used chemical sprays to subdue those who didn't understand the orders given to them in English. The plant's workforce was herded into the cafeteria, and agents separated the workers into two groups those who claimed to be U.S. citizens and legal residents, and those who did not. That sounds like an extremely scary event for these people. Um, So what happened to those who were not able to prove that they were residents? Those workers who could not prove their residency were detained and shackled together in small groups before being loaded onto buses. As word spread of the ensuing raids, Crowds of family and friends and neighbors began to gather outside each of the plants. So it seems that the raids became quite the spectacle. Um, I'm sure that word got out. And while this focused on the morning shift, what happened to those workers who had other shifts or maybe had the day off? From what we know, a large percentage of workers didn't show up for the second shift that day. We don't have exact numbers on how many workers were lost in total. However, SWIFT was still able to resume full operation of their plants the same day of the raids. 
It's interesting that they were able to resume full operation that same day. It seemed like a lot of people were arrested. Um, did this have a greater impact on Swift? Uh, what happened after the raids? So first of all, I think it's important to note that Swift and Company had an extensive history of hiring immigrant workers. In order to cut costs and shift their employee population away from skilled union workers, Swift relocated their processing plants to rural areas closer to livestock production and hired less skilled workers. They were able to further cut production costs by offering lower wages to refugees from Vietnam and Laos, as well as immigrants from Latin America. U.S. immigration policies, such as the Brocero Agreement and Reagan's Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, further opened avenues of employment for migrants between swift plants and countries such as Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. In many ways, SWIFT relied on the low wages and hard work of migrant populations to ensure profitability. The raids resulted in the arrest of about 8-10% to 10 of each plant's workforce, with many more employees never returning to work. The SWIFT plants struggled to replenish their workforces for several months, they tried to increase wages and offer sign-on bonuses in attempts to attract native-born and documented workers. They also implemented a transportation program to bus employees from outside the local communities to come work at the plants. All of the SWIFT plants began filling their vacant positions by drawing on newer refugee populations from places such as Sudan and Burma. One report from the Center of Immigration Studies noted these most recent refugees have allowed SWIFT and other meat processors to sustain working conditions not tolerable to many U.S.-born workers. Hmm. So we'll dive into the myths a little bit later, but it seems like the rhetoric that is typically spread about immigrants taking people's jobs doesn't really apply in this case. Um, with the company struggling to find people who are willing to do the work, you're totally right. In one interview with a documented worker in Hiram, Utah, he said something along the lines of, these immigrants aren't taking your jobs. If you want them, they're open. Come and get them. So ultimately, what ended up happening to Swift after these raids? It sounds like they suffered a pretty big loss having seen about 8 to 10% of their workforce gone in a single day. It absolutely did take a toll. However, the six plants did return to full production within a few months. In the year following the raid, Swift was purchased by a Brazilian company and is now known as JBS Swift. Some business commentators claim that the fallout of the raid was what led to the sale of the previously U.S.-based company. So in this aftermath, was there any legal ramifications for ICE or Swift? There was legal action taken against ICE. The United Food and Commercial Workers Union, or UFCW, filed a petition for habeas corpus following the raids. UFCW also asked for an injunction against ICE on the grounds that they were mistreating the detainees. In Rinaldo Yorito v. Juliel Myers, ICE responded by attacking UFCW's legal standing, stating the detainees had not been mistreated and the case was later dismissed. UFCW also filed a class action lawsuit against ICE on Fourth and Fifth Amendment grounds. The lawsuit, however, didn't see any traction. SWIFT also saw lawsuits surrounding the hiring of illegal workers in an effort to depress wages. 
However, that lawsuit was dismissed in 2009. The reason that was cited in the lawsuit was because legal and illegal workers could not be clearly separated in retrospect. The relevant class could not be ascertained. In Marshalltown, Iowa, a manager and a union organizer were later convicted of helping people to get jobs at Swift without proper documentation. No charges were ever brought against Swift corporate officials. There is so much that happened and only so much that we could dive into regarding Operation Wagon Train. We hope to paint a greater picture from firsthand accounts as we continue to explore this event in upcoming episodes. But before we move forward, it's important to break down a few misconceptions regarding immigrants and immigration. They steal our jobs. According to economists on both sides of the aisle, no. Immigrants are indeed really good at finding jobs. So good. There is a lot of harmful, hurtful, and simply misguided rhetoric around immigration especially when it comes to undocumented immigration in America. The unspoken part is this rhetoric is typically only thrown around when it comes to immigration from Latin America. We could make an entire podcast series debating and debunking these narratives. However, for now, we want to highlight just a few key myths and facts. Myth number one, immigrants will take American jobs, lower wages, and especially hurt the poor. The fact of the matter is, Immigrants don't take American jobs, lower wages, or push the poor out of the labor market. The history of U.S. immigration policy has often incentivized companies to employ migrant workers in positions native-born U.S. workers often don't want to fill. Myth number two, immigrants are a major source of crime. Immigrants, including illegal immigrants, are less likely to be incarcerated in prisons, convicted of crimes, or arrested than native-born Americans. From my experience, due to fear of being deported, immigrant communities work hard to keep a low profile and avoid encounters with police or other authorities. Myth number three, it is easy to immigrate here legally. Why don't illegal immigrants just get in line? It is actually extremely difficult to immigrate legally to the United States. Immigration law is second only to income tax code and legal complexity. And the process is often further complicated by arbitrary factors such as what year they arrived in the U.S., how they migrated here, and what country they are coming from. Myth number four, immigrants abuse the welfare state. Statistically speaking, immigrants use significantly less welfare than native-born Americans. There are often times when the system actually abuses more of the immigrants than the immigrants of the system. For example, one common misconception that we hear is that immigrants don't pay taxes and abuse the welfare system. Few people know of individual taxpayer identification numbers or ITIN numbers, which are given to undocumented residents in order to file tax returns. Undocumented immigrants will use this ITIN number to file and pay their taxes during tax season, but will never see any of the benefits of Medicaid, Medicare, or Social Security, or any other program that they contribute to, but millions of Americans get the benefits of. To be clear, we are not debating the ethics of undocumented immigration. We are focusing on the reality of current U.S. immigration policy and the stories of the people who are caught in the crosshairs. So, my love, where does the story go from here? So, now that we have the background, the rest of this podcast will be focused on a place that's very special to me, uh, a place I really consider home. While these raids shook each of their respective communities in unique and profound ways, we could, and will hopefully one day, give an entire series on each of these impacted locations. 
for the purpose of this podcast, we will be narrowing in on the Hiram, Utah plant and the surrounding Cache Valley community. As we've surfaced time and time again throughout this episode, in communities where there are a number of undocumented people, there's often an atmosphere of fear when it comes to speaking up about the undocumented experience. As we will explore in this podcast, that fear is very much valid. We want to be aware of this and the underhanded tactics often used by ICE that perpetuate the type of trauma we will be discussing. To create a layer of insulation around the community and the people who will be a part of this podcast, some of those we interview will have their identifying information omitted as much as possible. We hope you can join us for the rest of this series to give life to the stories of this community and amplify the voices who are often silenced by fear. Next time on Solo Ramos Niños, we'll focus on the raid in Hiram, Utah from the perspective of those who lived it. I'm Angel Lopez. And I'm Shelby Lopez. Hasta la próxima. Solo Ramos Niños was written, produced, and edited by Angel Lopez and Shelby Lopez. Music by Chris Illig. Cover art by Alexis Rausch. Myths and facts were based on her article, 15 Myths About Immigration Debunked, by Alex Nelresit of the Cato Institute. The article and other sources can be found in the show notes.